0: Hi there. I want to ask you a question. Did you go to the bathroom today? No, I'm serious. Did you go to the bathroom today? And now for my follow up question, one that, if you're listening, probably seems really stupid and even weird. Where did you go to the bathroom? And no, I don't mean like your home or the office or a Starbucks. What I mean is, did you have to go outside and dig a hole? To go to the bathroom? Or did you have to find a bush to crouch behind? Probably not. You more than likely just walked down the hallway and went to the bathroom, flushed, and went on about your day thinking absolutely nothing of it. But did you know around 800 million people, let me say that again, 800 million people, 10% of our population, don't have access to a toilet. 800 million people they're going to the bathroom wherever they can oftentimes with devastating consequences on their and their family's health and now Jordanian Palestinian engineer and entrepreneur Bara Huabe, he's doing something about it today's episode comes not from silicon valley but from jordan population around 10 million the capital Amman. Border countries? Jordan sits right in the middle of Israel, Palestine, Syria, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. The top exports? Fertilizers, chemicals like calcium phosphate, pharmaceutical products, and clothing. It was 2013, and Barah was living in Izmir, Turkey, which became a hotbed for Syrian refugees fleeing Syria at the height of the Syrian war. And in a sequence of events that could, and probably should, be told in a movie, Bara found himself in Gaziantep, Turkey, near the Syrian border, where his life would change forever. I'm David Zabinski. I am Bara Wahbe. And this is the story of how one man is trying to give hundreds of millions of people, from refugee camps to rural poverty-stricken areas in the global south, the opportunity to shit with dignity, with privacy, and in a way that doesn't put their lives in serious danger each time they use the bathroom. And before we get started, two very brief caveats. First, this is a fairly vulgar and heavy episode where we talk about, well, shit, as well as the very real and harsh conditions in which millions of displaced refugees around the world live. And second, this episode is being recorded from Amman, Jordan, and about halfway through the episode, the local call to prayer from a nearby mosque can be heard in the background. If you find it distracting, don't worry, it only lasts a minute or two. Let's get started. Bara, as a Palestinian Jordanian, after growing up in Jordan and going to university in Turkey, you had the opportunity to...
1: I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And um, I decided... In fact, I had the opportunity to go and work in Emirates in Dubai with a construction company. And I had an opportunity to do like a master's degree in Israel. So? So I went to Israel because... As an Arab Jordanian, like young male, it's very hard to obtain visa over there. Just this is a politics in this region.
0: Okay. And as in your words, as this young Arab Jordanian male, how was that experience?
1: Like there was many cultural shock, to be honest. I think in the first week, uh, first time I went to Jerusalem, I went to I went to Jerusalem with the, through the bus and going down in the central bus station, seeing all the settlers with a machine gun made me like freak out. And run away, ended up on Saturday night on the Shabbat or Friday evening where the Shabbat starts, in kind of like a, an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood. There is the good and there is the bad. Like it's not an easy experience for a person from my background, let's say, given the context of the Middle East. I had very good friends and um, it was a very interesting experience, let's say. And how about the
0: education itself? Where were you studying?
1: I, I was based on uh, the Blaustein Institute and over there you had it's only like place for master students and PhD. Like I think the population is like two hundred students only. So I had big lab. And it's like high end research. So I learned a lot of uh techniques, approaches to analyze a problem and uh go through it. And uh I think I was very lucky. Let's put it th- in a very simple word, I won't have this opportunity any other place, maybe.
0: So I suppose as a Palestinian Jordanian growing up, you figured Israel would be well, the last place you'd get your master's. But it seems like it was a really good experience. Yeah. So what happened next? I got an opportunity to do a PhD, in fact.
1: And uh, like I had two uh, supervisors. One is an Israeli, uh, Dr. Roni Kasher, And one is an Israeli Arab. His name is Dr. Tariq Abu Hamad. And they offered me to do a PhD student, a PhD degree, but I decided uh, it's enough. Like I spent four years and master's PhD, it might take 10 years with me. Right. I was tired per se, like from the research. I, I did a research on uh, on hydrogen uh, production, on-site hydrogen production. So uh, we devel- in fact, we developed a mathematical model for a uh, chemical reaction. The work was very interesting. It was a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, spending a lot of time in labs, I was, that's it, I don't want more labs. And where'd you go after Israel? Uh, I headed to Turkey. You went back to Turkey? Why? Uh, I got family support, like there was some ongoing family business, and uh, I got the opportunity to handle the business.
0: What was that business?
1: Uh, part of construction, part of a trade, and um, I was based in Izmir. Izmir is a coastal city in Turkey. In like north, uh, west Turkey. And next to it is like many Greek islands. Like one of the islands you can swim like one and a half kilometers. And when was this? And that was like 2013. And there was like the, the immigration from, uh, Turkey to the Europe, like started to happen because of the Syrian war. You had like immig- immigrants coming from Syria, some immigrants coming from Afghanistan and from other countries, like African countries. Izmir became a hub. Like there was a very strong, illegal immigration mafia operating over there. An illegal immigration mafia. What does that mean? Well, you pay them $10,000 and they take you to UK or to France or to
0: Germany. Wow. Yeah, it's a very, like, I don't want to say regulated, but well-structured. And what, it's a bunch of Turks trafficking Syrians, seeking refuge from Turkey to Europe? It's all kinds of things, but uh, definitely because it's based or
1: start in Turkey, right? Then they take you to Europe, then... It depends on the route you take. So, if you go through Greek, or you go through Italy, or you go through Bulgaria, it depends on the route. So, it's a it's an international thing. Like they have, it, it's a long chain. It's not a simple thing. Right. Start in Izmir, and uh, when you say mafia, it's not a nice word. Like it's a it's a dirty business. That the ultimate goal of it is to make money on the cost of other things. What do you mean by that? Let's say I want to cross to Greek island. The way they would do it from Izmir, they will put you in a boat and make you sail for one hour or two hours until you reach a Greek island. The boat will be like a very shitty one, very cheap one. And maybe it's maximum capacity, 10 people. They will put inside 15 or 20 people. So the boat will uh, sink on the road or the motor will stop working because they want to increase their margin of profit. You saw this firsthand. I think in 2013, a friend of mine who works in uh, NPR came to Turkey and wanted to a translator to walk her through. She wanted to talk with Syrian refugees who are planning. uh, By the way, I hate the word "refugee." Why is that? I think the word "refugee" is wrong. It's kind of dehumanizing the person in front of you. This is my personal thought on it. She wanted with people uh, who want to cross to Europe. And she wanted a person who can act as a translator and who knows the region. So I spent with her like two or three days where we went to cafes and like to the hot spot where people meet and talk with the with the mafia people. And it's like funny, she came from the US and she knows like exactly where she want to go. And like, you know, like everyone knows these things exist. So the police did not do anything at that time because there was no deal simply between the EU and Turkey. And I'm not sure if you know about the EU-Turkey deal about immigrants. I, I don't, no. Like, we pay you money and you need, like, to guard your border in a better way. And when you think about it, like, you think about it, how people act toward other people is kind of degrading. Like, these are people in need and they're going to that place for a reason. Right. Anyhow, going with Deborah. Sorry, so Deborah was your NPR friend? Yes. Um... I was shocked how ignorant I was. Ignorant how? Like, I live there. I speak like Turkish. I speak Arabic. And I never tried to go
0: and speak with these people. Okay, by these people, you mean the Syrians hoping to find a better life? To cross to the other side, yes. And in fact, in one uh,
1: summer in 2013, it was a very hot summer. And I know it was a big deal in Izmir. The mayor of the, of the city close the public park from Syrian. Like, you are not allowed to enter the public park to sit under the tree shade. What? Just like New York, where you have this uh, central park, and uh, this park has gates. And the mayor of the city made an announcement to close the park gate, and he doesn't want people to sit under the tree shade. So I saw that with my eyes, and I saw how it impacted people.
0: But only Syrians were kept out.
1: Yeah. So people would come to stay in Izmir for 2 or 3 days until their uh, let's say their pickup is ready or boat is ready to go to Greek island and by talking with people I start to see how they suffer even they come to Izmir for 3 or 4 days how many challenges they would see or they would go through and how much money smuggling people to Europe was expensive
0: Yeah and let's set some context here Barra things for Syrians in Izmir were really really Hard but look at the alternative right I mean back home in Syria
1: well you had um, you had a war you had different parties who don't agree or who want to take power and they were killing each other it doesn't matter in which side you are but many people don't want to be part of this conflict that's simple people some people like would call them they don't love their country and they're running away when their country need them and I think what they want their statement was very clear they don't want to be part of this war right. And they want a better uh, future for their kids. And at that time, uh, mm-hmm. Europe in a way would provide you with more legal right or mm-hmm. human right than any other place, as simple as it gets. So um, who had money, who had money would go to Europe and who doesn't have money would stay in Syria or go like to less opportunities take place. So that's what happened. And that was like my first interaction with the humanitarian world in, in, in a level. Like growing up in Jordan, my grandmother had a lot of uh, humanitarian work, helping people in refugee camp. But it's like post-emergency context. And it's like people just living in poverty. So I, I, I did visit many people in their home and I helped. I was a little child. I did not see the big picture. I did not feel what does it mean to run away from your country. These people who run away from Syria, they've run from war. Their home most probably were destroyed or robbed or, you know, they lost everything they had. So when you see them, they have like one or two big bags on their back, and this is everything they have in life. All of their clothes, all of their pictures, all of their memories is on their back.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really hard concept for people to truly understand unless they live it or see it firsthand. So at that time,
1: um, I felt ashamed of my ignorance. You know, I was focused on my personal growth. I was focused on my own company. I was focused on my own future. And every day, maybe thousands of people was passing the city and I was just trying. I don't care. And someone from the U.S. is coming uh, to specifically to Izmir to see what's really happening. The human traffic, this and that. And she knew more about the contest than me. I felt ashamed of myself. And I think at that point, I started to put more interest and more
0: energy in this topic. All right. Sorry, Barbara, not to derail the conversation, but I think I hear the call to prayer in the background. And I grew up in New York City in a very small suburb of Boston. So I never heard the call to prayer until I moved to Dubai in, in 2015. Maybe you can talk a bit about that briefly.
1: Yeah. So I live close to the mosque and five times a day, there's a the prayers call for the prayer from the mosque.
0: So you go to mosque and pray or you practice at home. And it's quite loud. It's actually quite beautiful, especially as it's almost thematically playing at this point in our discussion. You're seeing suffering amongst thousands of Syrian people firsthand. what do you do next?
1: Well, I went to the internet and I Googled and looked on Facebook on any organization that support uh, displaced population in Izmir city. Like I checked in English and Turkish and Arabic. And I found a few initiatives that uh, for people that distribute food, clothes to poor people living in the city. So I reached out to them. I go through my network. We collect a lot of clothes. It was winter at that time. Uh, we col- it was November, I think. We collect a lot of clothes. We collect a lot of food. And we go and do distribution. And then I learned that there are many, many Syrians, like more than 100,000 Syrians living in Izmir city. And those people are
0: poor. Yeah, Baro, that was my next question. I mean, the 100,000 displaced Syrians living in Izmir who couldn't afford to pay the mafia, for lack of a better word, to get to Europe. In Izmir, where were they staying? What
1: were they doing for work? They're living within the city, in the poor part of, on the periphery of the city. And they are poor. They work uh, in uh, Turkish factories for minimum wages. And many of them, after they work, like they don't get paid because they're not social, like uh, registered in a proper way. Right. I think at that time, uh, there was a guy, an English guy, who reached out to me through one of these, I think Facebook or uh, on, on Facebook. Like uh, he says, he's, uh, it was like 1 a.m. already. He said, I'm in Izmir, I work with an organization, uh, I forgot his name, and I'm in Turkey to map where are people who need help. Are you available to meet and talk? So next to my home, there is a cafe, we go and meet like at 1 a.m. And in the next three days, he he rented a car and he had money. And he helped us in distributing uh, food and clothes for a lot of the poor family in the region. Then he said, "I want to go to Adana or Gaziantep, which is close to the Syrian border. And I would appreciate it if you can come with me because I need a guy to translate with me to translate Arabic to me." And uh, I said, "Yeah, let's go." It was almost the New Year's Eve. It was like end of uh, in, in December. So we go to Gaziantep on like on the 27th of December. Uh, By the way, this is like uh, 2015. I think it's 2015. And we drive uh, nonstop from Izmir to Gaziantep, which is like uh, 20 hours driving. Wow. Yeah. And the moment we reach there, we go to the hotel and the police come and check with us. Like why you're coming to the city? Because at this time you are having uh, anyone who come to the, like it's a border city with Syria. So people think, and you know, at that time there are many people from the West goes to Syria to join ISIS. And uh, my friend from England, his name is Adnan, and his origin originally is from Pakistan. And me, Palestinian, and my friend Sam,
0: an American Jew. Yeah, it sounds just like the start to an awful joke. A Palestinian, a Jew, and a Pakistani Brit walk into a bar.
1: Yeah, and the American. What did he literally say to the police? ISIS offered $100,000 tax-free for chemical engineers to run, uh, petro- to run the petroleum refinery
0: in north of Syria. What? I mean, as an American Jew myself, I can say this. Your friend is a schmuck. What did he say? He said a joke.
1: He's not a joke. Like He found an ad- advertisement online that says uh-huh. ISIS is looking for chemical engineers to run refiner- oil refinery. And they are willing to pay $100,000. a year, tax-free.
0: He thought that was a good idea? He thought it's funny. Yeah, well, I guess the police didn't.
1: No. They locked us for 24 hours, and they did, like, security check on us. And then they told us
0: that we can go out. That was, like, really, really bad. Uh, I was quite stressed. It was not an easy thing. All right, so you get out of detention. You're in this border town between Syria and Turkey. And then what? We do, like, around. We see a lot of people who live... uh,
1: Around the outside the city, like in small tents and small camps. Um, it was like quite horrible. It was quite cold. It was, there was a lot of snow. And I started to understand that there is something called informal ag- agriculture or informal settlements around the city. And as we drove back to Izmir, we saw more and more settlements where people live in a rural zone and they work in agricultural work. And they have to handle everything. They don't have access to electricity. They don't have access to clean water. They don't have access literally to nothing. And they work there simply because there is job agricultural work to seed
0: or harvest uh, fruits and veggies. So these are displaced Syrians just trying to survive, working on the farm during the day and during the night, have no access to electricity or heat or even a place to rest? Day or night. And maybe then they will not get paid. Yeah, Bara, I think a few folks, when they hear this, they think, why are you subjecting yourself to this, right? The, the famous question is, why don't you go back to where you came from? But what a lot of these people don't realize is, where these people come from, there's, there's war. I mean, their homes, their lives destroyed. There's nowhere to go back to. True. True. Living this
1: and seeing it with my own eyes and talking with people, you understand how life is not fair. And to be honest with you, at that time I had problem with my business. So going and talking with other people and helping them was giving me a lot of energy and making me understand that my problem is are nothing compared to these people's problem. Well said. That was a big thing for me. First of all, like meeting all of these uh, amazing volunteers and uh, people who leave their life behind and they come. To Turkey, like, uh, to help these displaced population. And just getting a better... Just to make them feel that there is someone who cares. Maybe they can't afford a lot. Like, how much money you pump is honestly nothing. But just to make them feel that we care, I was inspired by them. And then to see other people's problem made me understand that my problem is nothing. So that was uh, a new part of my life where I started to move or shift my interest or character or uh, my hobbies or what I want to do. Yeah, your passion. My passion, yeah. To to this kind of work, I, I start to feel happy again. You know? Like our way in somehow is structured. like with all respect, we are being grown up like either in Middle East or US, like you went all over, I guess, to become like consumer community. I buy a PC, I buy a new phone, I buy a new shirt, I'm happy. But uh, I was not. I had everything I needed and I was not happy. But when I started to help other people, I really felt happy from inside. Wow. And that's the point when my life started to change dramatically. So the next thing, I don't know how it ended up. I was uh, running the logistics for a Swiss organization that provide medical services to informal settlements in Turkey around Izmir. And I start to work with amazing volunteers who are like medical doctors. Many of them from the U.S. I don't know how they found out about us. They would come. They work like relentlessly for uh, 18 hours a day. Not only this, they buy all the medicine they need to give for people. They come for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. They work full time, full energy, then they go back home. Then they come back six or seven months again, seven months later to do like another mission. So I was running like an operation for one or two years, full time, working with these fantastic people and all of them like medical staff, uh, midwife, nurses, a surgeon. And I started to learn a lot about public health from them. And what I learned working with them, because we were focused on providing services in informal agricultural settlement.
0: Sorry, when you say services, what do you mean? Just medical services? Just medical services.
1: Okay. The smallest settlements we were helping is at least like 10 12 tent and each tent like population is like 10 8 people so 100 people per camp. What? 8 to 10
0: people per tent?
1: Yes. It's very dense. Very very dense. And there was at least like we were providing services medical services to 5 6000 people around Izmir. And what kind of medical issues were these people having? What medical issue they are not having? They drink water immediately from underground water, not treated. So all problem comes with water to start. They work in uh, collecting the food fruit and veggies from trees. All of them have uh, chemical uh, fertilizer or uh, anti-thing on it. And it will give them all type of allergies, like skin allergy or like to respiratory system allergy. Uh, the water and the food they eat is not really clean. And uh, what we learned with time, of course, uh, the, as you don't have solid management waste system, like these camps, you need to acknowledge they have high rate of new babies and everyone uses diapers. So front, next to each camp, you have like this disaster of solid waste management, like pile of diapers just there. No one to collect them. There is no way to dispose them and no one is burning them. And imagine when it rained mm. between kitchen scrap, solid waste disposal, and shit from pitlet tree coming all together. People were always sick. We're all giving them treatment, but th- every day we come back, they are still sick. And at that time, I was talking with one of the doctors, and we said, we need to create a simple drainage system in the site and upgrade their toilet. So uh, we went, we bought tools, and we told people to dig and build their own pit latrine, like a proper
0: one. Sorry, a pit latrine. Can you help me visualize? It's effectively, what, a hole in the ground?
1: Simply a one meter deep hole in the ground, and we would put around it a small uh, plastic sheet just to provide you with uh, like uh, privacy. Okay. But no one agreed. This is like a very exhausting, uh, f- would require a lot of physical work. And everyone is working all day long. And if they're not working, they just want to take rest. Of course, uh, I get it. Yeah, so that was the first time we built a couple of toilets. And we built like simple uh, trenches underground to provide uh, or prevent uh, water from becoming like stagnant. Like make a place where they wash things to disgrace water very fast. And that was the first toilet uh, product I start working on. And in fact, the person who pushed for it was a midwife. Yeah, she said, you won't believe how important for us to build toilets for these people. Yeah, what does she mean by
0: that? Bara, like, when I think of a toilet, I, I guess I take it for granted. I mean, I've never thought of it as something important, simply because I can't even visualize or conceptualize my life without one. I mean, the bathroom, it, it just exists. It, it's always existed for me. When was the last time you bought a toilet, David? Yeah, I mean, I've never bought a toilet in my
1: life. Exactly. We just come home and we find them there. Right. We don't really understand anything about toilet. Right. This is the thing. It's an infrastructure thing, just like electricity. Where electricity comes from? You don't know. You don't care. Just like food now, it's in the fridge, you know. We buy it from the market. We are so disconnected from the bigger picture. And this is the thing, like, uh, I think Cindy, uh, the midwife, she worked in many, she have a fantastic, she worked, I think, in more than 20 countries in the last 20 years, from Southeast Asia to Africa. And she understand how toilet impact people's life. And if you don't handle toilet properly, they would have a strong impact on people's life. So we built the first toilet with her. And after building the first toilet, I was, wow, this is a lot of work. And no, it will not work. Can't spend this amount of energy and resources in building toilets in this way.
0: And how are people in the camps going to the bathroom before?
1: Uh, they dig a small hole, like maybe like 20 or 30 cm. And they defecate there, they shed there, they poop there. And the poop add up and then it rains and everything in the pet ring goes up. And every, like it goes to the kitchen, it goes to their tent, everyone is sick. And uh, if, it, if you don't have rain, like in summertime, you will have a lot of flies around. And the flies will simply take the diseases or pathogens or whatever from the poop and take it to their hand, to their food, and uh,
0: always everyone is sick. You know, we have this very vulgar American expression that goes like, don't shit where you eat. And it means in a weird way, like don't date a coworker or a classmate or <laughs> yeah, but what you're describing, it has an entirely different meaning.
1: No, this is like literally
0: Yeah, well it, it's gut wrenching, man.
1: Yeah. And in fact, like the rain season, it's rain a lot in Esmir. So if you don't build a pet latin in the proper way, hundred percent it will overflood and like you will be swimming in shit, not you eat shit. You will be swimming in shit. Man. And in Gosh. fact, I saw kids one time who fall in a pit latrine. Jeez. So I was shocked with that. And I started to do like online, um, I attended a few online classes on uh, sanitation. Now, this is the thing. All of us are born in cities. Like most of the population lives in cities by now. And in cities, you have a network. Right. But uh, if you don't live in a city, it's a non network. So you need like to desludge it or you need to treat it in a different way. And there are no place to learn about uh, fecal sludge management. We don't have it in our classes. Right? This is A. Now, the, another like a fun fact for you to know, 80% of the sewer uh, disposal goes to seas and ocean and rivers. So maybe we have a lot of sewer network, but we don't have wastewater treatment plant. So most of our shit, literally, is being disposed in untreated way. If you go to latest uh, statistic, 4.6 billion people from around the world, they don't have access to safe sanitation. What? You, s- you said how many people? 4.6 billion. Billion with a B? With a B. Don't have access to safe sanitation.
0: That's over half the world's population.
1: Like 60 or 70% of the world population.
0: Okay, and define safe sanitation.
1: So their shit will not be treated before it being disposed to the environment. It will just go directly as is to the environment. So maybe you're living in a city, like you're living in Kenya, Nairobi. You're living in a building. You have a flush toilet. But the flush toilet is not connected. Maybe it's connected to a sewer network, but the sewer network is not connected to a treat- wastewater treatment plant. So he will flush everything. It will goes out and it will contaminate a river. In fact, if you go to Lake Victoria in Africa, it's just like a big uh, shithole with all the sewer from different countries hid there. You smell. If you go to India, the moment the airplane door opens, you smell shit in the air. Like, <sighs> mm. this is how bad it is. Now, the funny thing, we, in the 1900s, we developed a new toilet concept. It's called Improved Sanitation Facility, which is the flush toilet. Today, 2.1 billion don't have access to flush toilet. 2.1 billion? And around the world, I think 680 million practices authentication, which means you go behind a bush and you just poop. 680 million? Those are the numbers. And the thing, the problem with that, it does not end here. Imagine, like, if you are Pooping outside, you are contaminating the river or the underground water, uh, aquifers. Then the whole new crop season is polluted. You're drinking polluted water. You are sick. You are imagine the impact on the economic activities surrounded uh, anything over there. Now, even like why people like it's, it's, it's a big discussion. It's not something simple to go through, but not having access to affordable and dignifiable Sanitation facility. Imagine the impact on on people' life. Imagine you are a mom who works and have a baby kids. If you want, if if you're living in a developing country and you don't have toilet in your home, you have to go outside. Like you need to walk 30 minutes or 40 minutes one way and come come back. It's waste of your time. And honestly, the the value of our like we value people with with how much money they make. But honestly, the universal unit in life should be time.
0: And we're wasting our time on, like, to do basic necessity. Yeah, I, I mean, that figure, it's, it's hard for me to imagine. There are hundreds of millions of people around the world. And by the way, I've been to where you've mentioned, right? I, I've been to India. I've been to a whole lot of Western Sub-Saharan Africa. And, and still, it's hard for me to imagine there are 800 million people that don't have access to toilets. I, I would have never guessed the numbers that high.
1: When you go, if you are a woman and you go and defecate in the open space, imagine what might happen. Uh, cross, uh, how we call it? Um, someone might uh, reach out in the wrong way, like uh, how we call it. Uh, gender-based uh, violence might happen. It's happened a lot, especially in the most vulnerable situation to the most poor people.
0: My gosh!
1: Health risk. This is the second environmental pollution. You're not only polluting the environment, but there are other species other than the assholes, us the human live on this planet. And we're also attacking them and destroying their home habitat. Right. We, 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 we don't look this way. So the impact of it is really unbelievable. And that pushed me more and more because I come from back from engineering background and like basically my job was Handle all the logistic thing, which is not easy thing, but it's administrative work. And I did it happily because I felt I'm making a difference in people's life. But I wanted to do more. Unfortunately, I can't be a medical doctor. I don't have the know-how. I learned a lot, but I'm not a doctor, end of the day. And this is why I felt I want to grow in profession. I want to become like a sanitation expert. So I started doing or studying on online classes for free which I was happy to learn about. And working with medical doctor on site gave me a lot of understanding about public health guidelines and how you do things like deep information. And this is how I started my new career in a way. So at later stage, I joined uh, MSF. It's an organization I was very inspired by. Because uh, in 2018, uh, 2016, when the EU-Turkey deal, the only organization, humanitarian organization, who made a political statement against it was MSF. Right. And because they made a political statement, they were not allowed to work in Turkey anymore. Yeah, no one else made. So I was inspired with what they did. And uh, I was, some of the people I worked with originally worked with MSF. So I was inspired with the people, values who work with this organization. So I joined them. And I had uh, later on a mission to Yemen to work on the cholera outbreak. I went home, a man, uh, to visit my family, and my mission got canceled like 48 hours before I fly to Yemen. Like my bag was ready for a cholera outbreak mission, and uh, at that time, a friend of mine who worked with me in Turkey, uh, Doctor Sofia Tan, was in a man working with UNHCR, and she reached out to me, and uh, we met. And uh, as my mission got canceled, it was only a matter of time until I got uh, another mission. In fact, the second mission was scheduled to Sudan, South Sudan. But for personal reason, I decided to stay in Amman and take care of my grandfather. He's uh, He passed away now a few months ago. And uh Sophia was in man. We met a couple of times and we decided to develop uh we both understand Sorry, for your friend Sophia, can you give me some context? Sophia is a medical doctor and she has a master in public health. And she's from Singapore. And she wasn't a man, like look how the odds. And uh we both um uh, we were talking about the lack of uh sanitation product and services in humanitarian sectors. And we start like brainstorming on how we should develop the product. Like what should just do a, a, a framework for, we need like alternative, we need to need options. Whatever exists in the market is no good. And by the way, 95% on toilets that are being built in humanitarian sectors are pit latrine. So when you go to Yemen context, this is wrong. This is bad.
0: You're not solving a problem. Right, because with pit latrines, like you said, the same issues arise, no I... The shit still rises to the surface. It's not disinfected. It gets in people's food and water. Still, you, do, you did not solve the problem. And by the way, maybe they're cheap to
1: build, but they're expensive to operate. They're very expensive to operate. What do you mean? So a pet latrine simply, it could be with a flush or no flush. But okay. the moment the hole gets filled, you need to bring a tanker and you do the sludging, uh-huh. either manual or with a machine. And when you've Empty yet, you need to transport all the waste to a waste, waste water treatment plant, which might be far away, 20 kilometers or 50 kilometers. And then you need a tariff to further treat it. So when you look to it, the whole value chain is linear with multi-stakeholders. And most probably the guy, the sludger guy, will charge you for treatment, but he will dump the waste along the way in order to increase his margin. And it happened all over the world. And you just, we were just shocked, like, how everything in our life is designed like this linear economy, mass scale, increased uh,
0: profit margin, without, like, any thought in, on it. So in realizing this, what did you and Sophia start to do?
1: Uh, we started to think about the Yemen uh, context, the cholera outbreak. Yeah, can you talk a bit more about that? So what is, to start with, what, what, what happened in Yemen, like, five or ten years ago? War. Weapon. They destroy the infrastructure. Infrastructure is electricity, clean water supply, sewer network. And as a result, you still have people living there. And guess what? Everyone shut. With lack of access to uh, medical assistance, medical supplies, proper food, clean water supply, um, you start to have diseases. One of the diseases we have is cholera which is a disease that can transmit through fecal-oral uh, drought, and it will cause you to have a severe diarrhea. You might die within 78 hours because you lose most of the liquids in your body. And every time you shed, if your shed is not contained in proper way, um, you will contaminate uh, the water surface or underground water surface, or a, a bug, a fly, a vector will come, take it, and send it to someone else. Right. So we start, so this is cholera. And with one people sick, he can infect everyone around him or in a camp. And the context of Yemen, you have a severe, strong fight. Mm. And you have in the middle, as usual, the poor people who are suffering. So the idea was how we want to design a system that contain the fecal waste, the human waste, one. Second, disinfect it from pathogen. So containment is one process and on site disinfection is another process. Good point. So, uh, we start thinking like how we like, it's a multi-layered. First of all, let's start here. Uh, you know, smartphone came to, or phones, mobile phone came to life 30 years ago. In 30 years, you had like maybe 500 iteration, if not more toilet, the existence ever. And maybe three iterations so far. No one wants to talk about them. No one wants to he- deal with them. And no one acknowledge that he shit twice or three times
0: a day. I don't know, man. I was in Japan a few years ago. I don't know if you've seen those toilets. But man, I enjoyed every single shit I took over there. <laughs> well, Japan is another planet, I would say. It is.
1: But yeah, like uh, in a way, in most cultures, shit is a taboo. People don't like to talk about it. Like culturally, religiously, behavior, no one talk about it. Mm. I don't know why, but me, like I, I, I never talked about it. Now I talk about it all the time, but there is a big taboo about it. And uh, like, even when we, I was running my, we started uh, operating, like I built my own. So we started to think about it. And we had an idea that we should treat things on site. And the idea of it is by adding like special powder mix to the w- fecal waste to kill everything.
0: Right. So even if feces is kept on site, at least it won't get the entire area sick. Yes. So
1: why we're doing like literature review and this and building this uh, research, it's, 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 it's a research. It's not a simple thing. I start reaching out to laboratory in a and I want to send to them like uh, fecal sample and I want them to conduct experiment on it. And no lab accepted to, to take my sample. Sorry, this is a layup, but no one was taking your shit, huh? Yeah, it, it smelled bad. It might uh, contaminate their lab. And uh, if someone, and he, he agreed, he gave us like a huge price, like $50 per sample analysis. And maybe we'll do like a thousand samples. This is huge cost. So we ended up uh, building a microbiology lab in my basement.
0: Seriously? I built a,
1: gre- a clean room with a special ventilation, so I don't have cross-contamination. I installed filters. I got uh, what we call it, a special fridge. We build uh, something for pressure, what we call it. Uh, I forgot. Like we built a whole lab on my basement, clean room. And uh, it happened, my grandfather developed a medicine uh, 10 years ago. And uh, I was his assistant and I learned a lot from him. And simply what I did, I took his medicine and I upgraded the formula. So we built like a matrix. We want something affordable, something not toxic, something that exists everywhere. Something that has uh, like high uh,
0: disinfection rate. So we built like our own matrix. And this matrix you were building, it'd be a disinfectant to put into fecal matter so that, what, it wouldn't spread toxins around settlements? Yes. And we started to think, what
1: is really shit? It's 80% water, it's fibers, and bacteria, and protein. So in other words, it's resources.
0: Yeah, Bara, you are the first person I've ever heard say, shit is a resource.
1: So we started to think, if we want to dispose thing in the proper way, we need to dispose it in a way it does not harm the environment. Right. So whatever disinfectant we will develop, it should not have... A bad impact on the soil, and end of the day, we are talking about concentration. So, the research became more complicated. So, one we have one layer which we need to do co- uh, containment, then we need to do disinfection, then we need to study the impact on soil. So, we ha- we running three different experiments, and it took us almost three years in the product development part. Wow! And Ostafia left Jordan like after one year, almost. Uh, she went back to Singapore and she left me to do all the shit alone. Perfect. We were very lucky. We met, uh, our product developer, um, Mandy Moway. She's from Hong Kong. How Mandy get to the business is a long story, but long story short. With Mandy, we upgraded our business to if, you know, an average adult per day will produce one and a half liter of urine and 400 grams of fecal waste. If you mix them together, you end up with two kg and it's harder to process. If you separate them, because the urine, when it leaves your body, it's clean, it does not have pathogen on it. Good to know. If you separate them from each other, we can treat in easier process. Right. Now, the one thing when you talk about to- toilet, first, one, first of all, everyone has a nasal so everyone should. Second, the difference is between people, either you have a wiper or you have a washer. And washer population were not really acknowledged in the product development. So with the help of Mandy, we developed uh, what we call it, a liquid diver- dry, diverting dry toilet. So uh, the Gates Foundation have run and experimented a lot of dry toilet all, all over the world. But when they came to the MENA region, all of the dry toilet were a big failure. Simply because we have a washer population. We use water to clean ourselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I first moved to the MENA region as an American, I was shocked to see what I thought was like a hose in every single bathroom.
1: So with the support of Mandy, we developed our new pan that separates cleansing water and urine from fecal waste. And that is by itself is is an amazing thing. How does it work? Well, you need to see it. (laughs) It's very hard to explain. But we designed the pan with a specific geometry to separate all liquids. Of course, you have to consider the human body, how, how they call it. Ergonomics and the separation of uh, when they stand and when they sit and the separation. And keep in mind, male and female body are different. We spent almost one and a half years. And I think we have seven or six different, five different iteration of pants development until we end up with a really good product. So we ended up with a product that is made of three different parts. We have a pan that separates liquids from solid. We have a powder mix that kills pathogen and adds value to the nutrients. And we have a bag, which is a very interesting part of the process, made 100% from compostable material. And it acts as a membrane layer. It allows only water vapor to leave. So what we do really with the shed is we remove all the water content from it. So if you have 10 kg of shed, we, trans- we, we transform it into 2 kg of,
0: of organic matter. All right. So in this three-part contraption, you're one, containing feces and giving privacy to those using the bathroom. You're two, disinfecting the waste so they're no longer getting sick. And three, you're adding value to the environment. And maybe economical uh,
1: value, because you potentially, or depends on the country you operate in, or we will operate in, we can sell this byproduct to farmers. What? You you mean sell the shit? Yeah. Treated shit. I'll tell you one thing. Do you know that synthetic fertilizer per ton produces 1.1 ton of carbon, of greenhouse gas emission? No, I didn't. 1.1 1.1 ton of greenhouse. Oh, it's, it's called like carbon dioxide emission equivalent. Right. Plus the logistic cost, which is huge. What if you can produce your fertilizer locally with minimum amount of ca- carbon dioxide emission? And probably
0: at a lower price. Yeah, and lower price, not to mention that. Bara, you've obviously done a tremendous amount of very scientific R&D. How have you finance this? well mainly we
1: bootstrapping we managed to get a couple of grants but uh, it's not sustainable and uh, right now even we reach out to organization in Jordan and around Jordan no one really cares now this is a big shock this is a big shock so uh, right now also, we had the COVID. You had the COVID. So we managed to get a couple of good grants, but grants are not good enough. Now we are having a full product, ready to scale, and we want to validate it on a hundred household scale. We were planning to launch a big pilot in Bangladesh, but Bangladesh right now just went out of a second lockdown. It went for 30 days lockdown. We're reaching out to big organizations like WaterAid, IDE, uh, and so on. Uh, they showed a big interest in our work. But I think at this moment of time in the world history, what we have is kind of irrelevant. Irrelevant? Because the COVID is taking most of the funding and grants. So how
0: many Akia's toilets do you currently have installed?
1: Seven toilets.
0: Where? Two in
1: Turkey and uh, five in Jordan. In camps? Yes. Uh, the latest
0: toilet we had, we built four sanitation facilities in the Zaatari camp. The Zatari camp. So, so that's Syrian refugees living in Jordan, right? Yes. And how's the feedback been?
1: Well, uh, Oxfam is handling the social acceptability part. We're building the social acceptability with them. Hopefully, in November 19, we will we, maybe we will publish the first report. But uh, the toilets pilot are going very well. Of course, there are many challenges. Like uh, on the first week when we installed the toilet, uh, people after they poop. They would go out, bring a bucket filled with water, and throw it inside the toilet. Right, which entirely
0: defeats the purpose of the engineering.
1: So that's why I was like, wow. Even though we, we talked about it, we put posters about it, but, you know, this is embedded in your behavior. You can't just change. People poop, they need to flush. Right. Yeah, we managed to overcome this problem by upgrading our design a little bit. But it was, wow, like, to do any behavior change when it comes to poop? Oh, my God. It'll take time. It's, it's like, it's not
0: just take time. Like, you can't talk with people about their proof. They will take it personal. Fair enough. But, Bara, how about the economics? I mean, It's quite evident the impact Akiyaz would have on hundreds of millions, even billions of people would be unparalleled. But investors, they want a return on capital. How will the numbers look?
1: I think um, if we manage to get a uh, population of, if we provide sanitation services on a daily basis for 20,000 people on daily basis, we reached our break even point. That's not a lot of people. So 20,000 people is not a lot, but when you talk about break even point, it doesn't work like, ah, uh, what's your minimum population you need to serve per day in order to reach the break even point? You need to consider like overhead. You need to think about like in three years plan. We can't operate, okay, here's a town, go today and build your toilet. We need to build, right now, like all of our toilets are made from aluminum, from recycled aluminum, for example, from recycled aluminum alloy. So one toilet cost me like $400. If I want to make it
0: $5, I need to build a plastic mold. So there's like an overhead to be considered. Right. So you need some additional capital for manufacturing CapEx so you can bring production costs down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think we, are, we, we need to raise some money and we need to think in a strategical way. So we would like to raise money for three years of operation.
0: And I think the market exists and the right partner exists. Yeah, I mean, how have conversations been so far? I imagine you're speaking predominantly to what, VCs and regional family offices? What's the reaction when you say, I want to help people shit? They might laugh. <laughs> right, it's this taboo subject that not enough people take seriously it seems why is that i suppose it's because people just don't know how serious and universal this problem is um this is a tough one i think it's the way we are being raised up like everyone for him
1: own self you need to go to school you need to get a good result you need to get a good job you need to get married you need to make kids you need to buy a car you need to buy a house like everything is designed in our home our our life in a linear thinking design approach And as long we don't think about other people and about the planet also, you can't go and ask people to donate or support other people in need, because this is not how we are designed to think or feel or live. So we need to change. Like I went through a big shock in my life. First, I lived in Israel as a Palestinian. Like I consider myself Palestinian in a sense. I made a move and I went there and I lived and I managed to create some kind of friendship with with Israelis. That was a not simple thing to me, just to make it clear. That's really uplifting. Syrians are Palestinian as it goes. We have the same, like, we are the same. We live in the same geographical location. And I did not connect with them. I connected with them when an American journalist asked me to go and translate. That was a second shock in my life. A third shock when I sat with them in their camp and saw how they live. I couldn't believe how, unequal the world could be. So you need to create this shock on a collective level. Otherwise, it's just like we're wasting time. And the moment people and believe me or not, uh, David, the joy and the happiness you get from helping another human or another animal worth any like new phone or video game or anything, the moment we reach there, things might take another
0: corner in the life of people. Well said. Bara, what is the future for Akiyos? Let's assume you can raise some money or get a sizable grant. What would be next?
1: So we are planning, uh, we have two plans. One is humanitarian sector. Because when you think about it, you have, some, you have a phrase called the BOP. It refers to, this acronym refers to the bottom of the pyramid population. Right, And the base of this pyramid is displaced people from war. Really, my passion is to work in helping people, either displace people from wars or from in environmental crises. By the way, with the global warming, we will have more and more people moving from their home. Sure. And uh, I personally would love to see myself helping these people. So this is one. But the bigger market is the global south. Like, you know, you're from the US, you know how the... Uh, Money is distributed, like the 1% have the 99% of the wealth. Yep. Global South is big, like country like Bangladesh, India, the average income of a person per day is less than $1. Right? These people deserve to have an affordable and dignified access to toilet. Nigeria, Africa is booming now with population. By 1800, the world population was 1 billion. Right? Today... In 200 years, we're 7.5 billion. The growth of the infrastructure did not run along with the growth of the population. That's right. And now the, Africa is growing fast. And we should not give them the right to build a flush toilet because we don't have enough clean water to flush. Right? So I think there should be an opportunity for us to go there and tell them, hey, this is the wrong way to do it. You know, one, to build one kilometer of a pipeline sewer network would cost you somewhere between 200 to $300,000. This is one kilometer. This is like capital expenses. You are not talking about operational. Operational is more insane. You need to pump water. You need to flush water. You need to treat water, not to mention how much leakage you will have in the network. Why to make them build a shitty system? Why not design things in proper way? And by the way, by 2050, 70% Seventy percent of the world population will be living in urban city, in urban centers, in Africa and Asia, and already today we have uh, water scarcity in both region. So, why to design shitty system? Continue working on this approach. So, we believe there is a big opportunity for us. But being based in Jordan, we face a lot of uh, opportunities to, like grant opportunities, uh, funding opportunities. And uh, we've been very lucky to be part of the Toilet Board Accelerator. It's a special program for toilet. They're based in Geneva. Maybe we'll get funding uh, through them, but maybe not. But at least people acknowledge our technology as breakthrough. We heard it from a couple of people who work in sanitation industry that what you did is a breakthrough, because we developed a product that is not only user centric, but it's like a, the, the the core of it is a circular economy. You don't need multi-stakeholder to take your shit from the pet latrine and throw it outside. People can do it if you want, or we can set up a small like operational system in bigger population or camp
0: area. Yeah, like you said, we don't need someone to transport one's shit and move it elsewhere if A, it's not being done properly and B, it's unnecessarily expensive. But this all begs the question, and you said it best, we've only had a handful of iterations of toilets, how do we convince billions of people to change the way they've been shitting for hundreds of years? I think one way of it
1: is we need to start to talk about it more and more in public. This is one way. Second, uh, people need just to start to change how you do it. Media, Facebook, uh, communication. I don't know, this could be one tool. I'm not sure. Like, this is not my specialty. I, I suck at this. We've been working for three years and no one knows about us. This is like, can't tell you a lot. But uh, I don't know. You tell me. What What comes to your mind?
0: Man, I I don't know. Uh, I think the biggest problem is ignorance. Like, I had no idea at all that, what, 800, 700 million people don't have access to toilets? Like you mentioned you had three shocks in your life that changed your preconceptions. I'm just going to look at my notes. So one was your positive experience in Israel. Two was your positive experience with Syrians. And three, when you saw, in your words, how unequal the world could be. And that's when you saw the conditions at the Syrian refugee camps in Turkey. So it's these types of infliction points that changed your thinking and your worldview. I think more people need to get out of their bubbles, so to speak, to, to see the world like you have and see what's really important in life, right? I think I would just say try
1: to be more thoughtful about others. And trust me, your life is not as bad as you think. Go volunteer with any organization outside your home country. Let's be less xenophobic. And by when you go and help any person, even if he's in the neighborhood, or homeless, or whatever. Just go and try. Do the first step. And uh, things will come, change. things will start to change Just do the first step.
0: That was barawabe and on Not From Silicon Valley. Be sure to subscribe, share, and review the Not From Silicon Valley podcast. And tune in next time as we feature another story of trial and triumph from a founder in an emerging or frontier economy. Bye-bye.